Bam 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 Hello everyone. How's your day going? How are you? How's your car ride? How are your kids? How's everything going? Oh my gosh, so many questions. Welcome back to Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. That's Lisa Linky. Hi. That's oh, that's Missy Sinnott. <laughs> I just stared at her till she did it. My bad. Welcome. This is the uh, podcast where we read and review for your listening pleasure a popular self-help book. Okay. And we tell you how we feel about it, mm-hmm. cover a lot of the main points. Mm-hmm. So if you like what you hear, you can buy the book. And if you don't like what you hear, you're welcome. You're so welcome. It's the gift of a big old nope. <laughs> yeah i wanted to start off this episode with the weirdest energy i could muster (laughs) is it working cutting the mustard thank you um awesome lisa yes how are you feeling about what you prepared for us today Ooh, i feel like we're going back to our roots on this one oh my god uh for those of you who may be joining us for the first time Mm -hmm. Lisa hates anyone telling her what to do. Anyone. And has a general aversion to self-help. Definitely. Although you have come around on a few books and a few points, and you, you, know, you are very good at, like, yes-anding. It's true. And I kind of was realizing when I looked back on some of the books that I liked, mm-hmm. they're not what I would call typical self-help books. Oh. Like Daring Greatly is more just about a treatise on vulnerability. <laughs> yeah, it kind of like is like, here are the facts, here's the research, yeah. here's what we've learned. When Things Fall Apart by Pima Chodron is more yeah. like, here's how I meditate and here's uh, uh, what meditation means from a Buddhist nun perspective. Sharing knowledge. Yes. Okay. And um, Big Magic mm-hmm. was about a process that a successful writer used. Yes. So, so you don't like the ones who are like, here's what you're getting wrong. And you need my help because you're inadequate. And here's the one way to do it. And here's the one way to do it. There you go. Not enough. We like, we're going to, uh, if we ever write a self-help book, I think the title is going to be, Here's a Caveat. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Lisa, so before we dive in, as a reminder, we are on a very mini little two-book finance series Just right around now. the time of tax time. Y'all have done some taxes, hopefully, and you're thinking about your money. Yeah, and hopefully this isn't raising your anxiety too much no. or you're excited about what you might do with your return or you're going, hmm, cool, cool, cool. I guess I got a few more dollars on my paychecks, but now I owe. Mm-hmm. Oh, fuck you. Mm-hmm. Or, hmm, cool, cool, cool. I have a, a file for an extension until October. Got to get my shit oh, together. Oh, is that how long you get October? You do. So you just do your taxes like once every 10 years. You just keep filing extensions. I love it. Well, no, you have to do it by that October. It's, I would just keep filing. Okay. Thank you. Lisa. Yes. What have you prepared? Misty and everyone listening from around the world, <laughs> I bring to you Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert T. Kiyosaki. Cool. Why is it called Rich Dad, Poor Dad? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, before I get into that, because uh, I didn't understand it for the first two chapters because it was oh. very confusing, um, I want to let you know that this is touted as the number one personal finance book of all time. Of all time. Of all time. Um, More than like Susie Orman, or is it Suze? Suze. More than Suze Orman. It, uh, yeah. More than Dave Ramsey. 
who, as we know, may have sold three, five, or 20 million copies. We're not sure. Can I tell you about this? Yeah. Let me tell you about Robert Kiyosaki. He's an American businessman and author. He is the founder of Rich Global LLC and the Rich Dad Company, a Mm -hmm. private financial education company that provides personal finance and business education to people through books and videos. The company's main revenues come from franchisees of the Rich Dad seminars that are conducted by independent people using Kiyosaki's brand name for a fee. So does that, doesn't that sound like a pyramid scheme? Um, no, but it does sound like how Trump real estate makes its money. Thank he you. is also the creator of the cash flow board and software games to educate adults and children um, to teach them business and financial concepts. His seminars in the U.S. and Canada are conducted in collaboration with a company called Elite Legacy Education, which is the only publicly traded education company monitored and approved by the SEC and the DOJ. Why are all his company names like Rich, mm-hmm, Rich, mm-hmm, Elite? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and they are uh, <laughs> the seminars are contracted out to local companies as affiliations in other countries. However, some attendees have sued him on claims that his high-priced seminars did not deliver anything special. He is the author of more than 26 books, including the international self-published personal finance, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. He self-published it at first. Wait, what, what, 26 books? Uh-huh. Uh, the Rich Dad, Poor Dad is a series of books which has been translated into 51 languages and sold over 40 million copies worldwide. What? And has been named as the New York Times bestseller. He's been on the uh, New York Times bestsellers list for over six years. Whoa. He has been criticized for advocating the practices of debatable, uh, of debatable legality perceived as get-rich-quick schemes and philosophies. Um, he is the subject of a class action suit against him by people who attended his seminars. <laughs> and he has been the subject of two investigative documentaries by CBC Canada and another TV uh, station here in the U- United States. What were they called? I don't know. Real Dad, Fake Dad? Thank you. His company filed for bankruptcy in 2012. What? What? Wait. Companies what? O- companies often file for wait, bankruptcy. No, no, no. Wait, wait. Uh-huh. So this is the best selling book of uh-huh. all time through his company. Uh-huh. So if he only made 50 cents a copy and he sold 40 million copies, he's got $20 million. Well, hold on. I think now, well, now it's published by somebody else, although maybe it's. But yeah. I mean, how, wait, so he's making a shit ton of money yeah. and he filed for bankruptcy? Why should we listen to this Not guy? Not him, but his company. Companies often file for bankruptcy. If they got sued, they might have had to file for bankruptcy. Oh. pg is filing for bankruptcy. Wait, but does that mean that someone who's bringing a claim against him from one of his seminars was going to win, so they filed bankruptcy? Settlements are never an indication of who is going to win. Okay. It's an indication of not wanting it to go to court. Okay. Um, this was originally uh, originally published in 1997. I have the special 20-year anniversary, 20 anniversary copy wow. here in my house. I feel like that was a really good, like— period for self-help books because that was like around the five love languages and around when things fall apart and this it's like people were just expanding their horizons yeah the uh the total title is (laughs) thank you (laughs) yep rich dad poor dad what the rich teach their kids about money that the poor and middle class do not Mm -hmm. the paperback is 1220 the mass market paperback is 577 what's a mass market paperback well mass market paperbacks are this size um, which you remember seeing in like grocery stores. Oh, um, and, oh, are books in grocery stores smaller? Mass yeah. market books are smaller. Yeah, they fit there, on shelves. E, well, all books fit on shelves. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I meant. <laughs> you remember this hey, size? Lisa, fuck you. Also, <laughs> they're I mean, literally like them. four by six. 
They're four yeah, by six. It looks, it's an easier printing size. It, it also reminds me of um, uh, like romance novels. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. Hmm. Um, hardcover is ninety six dollars and ninety nine cents. I'm sorry, why? Well, because they are Just out of rare, print. They're from nineteen ninety seven, and mm. you can probably buy used at lower prices or find it in a little free library in your neighborhood. Sure. The Kindle is four dollars and twenty three cents, and the Audible is nineteen dollars and ninety nine cents. Narrated by Tim Wheeler. Tim. Wheeler. I like that you're a person who adds an H before any W. Thank you. You're like, oh, in the White House. Oh, actually, his name is Tim H-W-H-E-E-L-E-R. Just no, kidding. No, it's not. Um, <laughs> guys, this book is 352 pages, and this 20th anniversary reprint edition has like a new 2020 hindsight forward um, where he's looking back at like 20 years ago when this happened. Okay. And some new study sessions at the end of each chapter, which basically sums up the chapter in a scant five pages when oh. he took 15 to tell it. Oh. And then providing a short tutorial of any terms or uh, concepts that were presented and questions to help you learn the content. So do you feel like... Uh, uh, a person picking up this book who wants to get through it quickly could just read those end five pages 100%. of each chapter? 100%. Wow. Um, the chapters in the book are six lessons he learned that he wants to pass along. Lesson one, the rich don't work for money. Lesson two, why teach financial literacy? Lesson three, mind your own business. Lesson four, the history of taxes and the power of corporations. Lesson five, the rich invent money. Lesson six, work to learn, don't work for money. Lesson seven, overcoming obstacles. And then he has a couple chapters at the end, getting started, more to-dos if you still want more, and some final thoughts. Um, I, um, I'm i going to hold back my objections until until we get to the chapters. Let him fly. But, but did he grow up rich? No. Okay. So, Okay. So he didn't have a rich dad to teach him all these lessons? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Why this, do you look so... <laughs> this book was originally self-published because every publisher turned him down. Oh, my they God. They wanted to change the title, but he wouldn't. Uh, he They wanted to change the title because he has fundamentally divergent thinking from many common-held ideas about money, and many publishers were uncomfortable printing it um, or felt like he was just simply wrong. Chapters... That in the original were that were titled "Savers Are Losers," and "Your House Is Not an Asset" were too risky for publishers. So that's why he originally self-published. So it's either it's either one of those rare moments in history when there's a true visionary who is right and everyone else is wrong, and they're the only like awakened person in the world on this subject, or. Given his history of lawsuits, bankruptcy, <laughs> and being turned down by all the major publishing houses, they were right? <laughs> okay, let's dive in. Yeah. In the, in the new forward, the 2020 hindsight, he's like, look, 20 years ago, I said that your house is not an asset. And then 10 years later, when the housing market busted... I was right. All these people whose houses were underwater, that was not an asset. Yeah, but how about now when you can't buy a house in Los Angeles for less than a million and a half dollars? Sounds like an asset. Lesson number one. <laughs> the rich don't work for money. Okay, so here's the story. Uh, Robert grew up with a, with, a, with a poor dad who was educated, who had a steady job, 
Basically, in the first chapter, he lays out explaining how he had a rich dad and a poor dad, but he does a shitty job of it because I could not fucking figure it out. Did he have two dads? Or he did, but he doesn't explain how he had two dads until much later in, in the chapter, and, like, you can't fucking figure it out. I so was very confused. Can you give us the, the easier-to-understand story? Yes. He had his his dad who worked as a like a professor and um and uh was not rich and he was very well educated and he um told him that rich people made money and so he and his friend Mike like concocted this scheme to melt down things that they found they're made of lead and and make nickels and they thought they had really you know like they figured made, it they out were they were physically making, making money. money and his dad was like okay you you you're onto something, but you don't understand it. So he was like, you should go talk to Mike's dad. He's he's really um, smart, and he makes a lot of money. And Mike's dad became Robert's surrogate dad in terms of learning about finance. He mm. was his rich dad, as he refers to him growing uh, up. So he was like a male mentor. Yes. Okay. His second father, really, mm-hmm. because Mike's dad— was uneducated, but very wealthy, had many businesses, ran an empire, employed many people, and really took Mike and Robert under his wing and um, taught them lessons about money, the mm. lessons that he teaches in the book. Now, if it's as it's written, boy, it sure happened like a fucking Norman Rockwell painting. Um what does that mean? Like, it's just, he just remembers things so cheekily. Like, uh, you know, just at the moment we were talking about what it means to have nothing, the town beggar walked by and dug through a trash can. Thank you. Right. Um, okay. So, lesson one, the rich don't work for money. Um, so, after he goes and he and Mike, his, his his best friend Mike, go to Mike's dad, he's like, I tell you what, you can work dusting stores and some of my convenience stores and I'll pay you 10 cents an hour on Saturday. And um, he was like, you either have to take it or leave it. He was like, I'll teach you all I, all you want to know about money, and I'll teach you how to be rich. But you have to do what I say, and um, this is the offer as it stands. Take it or leave it right now. Ten cents an hour. This was back in the 50s. Um, and uh, he was. the kids were like, okay. And so then they were working for three hours every Saturday, missing their baseball games and ten cents an hour. And they were like, they could buy a couple comics, and that was fine. After a couple of weeks, they were like... So what? So they go and they ask for a raise. And this is when he teaches them, like, the big lesson that he was like, um, okay, what if I pay you 50 cents an hour? What if I pay you a dollar an hour? What if I pay you $5 an hour? And somehow this little, like, 11-year-old kid knew or 8-year-old kid knew that that was not the lesson. The lesson was to remain quiet. And then the, then the rich dad is like, yeah, that's it, that people are driven by fear or greed. And um, – and so you just learn to keep your mouth shut and we don't work for money. Now I will continue to teach you all about um, about money and how to be rich, but you have to work for nothing. And they were like, okay. So they worked for free for a couple of weeks. And finally, Robert marches in there as a little kid and he's like, you're, you're abusing children and you're, you know, like he goes on. And so it's. Uh-huh. Let me get through this. And then he takes them to this park. It's this whole big long story, right? Like, And, yeah. and this is why I was like, is this your fucking birth father? Like, what yeah, the fuck was happening? happening? <laughs> so basically, um, he explains that poor and the poor and the middle class work for money. He takes them to the park and he shows them these people. And he's like, the poor and middle class work for money and rich people have money work for them. That's the difference. People's lives are forever controlled by greed and fear. Their fear and desire of money keeps them trapped in a cycle of working and he's, he says, the main cause of poverty or financial struggle is fear and ignorance, not the economy or the government or the rich. It's self-inflicted fear and ignorance that keep people trapped. 
No. Thank you. No. I think you know I had a problem with this from the get-go. Well, also, I want to point out that uh, Robert, the author, as a little 11-year-old, did not have to pay his own bills. He was actually financially privileged in that sense because he had no financial responsibility and could work for free and wasn't supporting a family and wasn't born, you know, in—I mean, he he's an Asian-American author— but I'm assuming that he wasn't dealing as an 11-year-old with systemic oppression that was keeping him from advancing in his, you know, sweeping No, as career. an 11-year-old, he had the opportunity to sit in. So Mike's dad ended up letting him and Mike sit in on all of his, like, business dealings. So he got to listen to—because Mike's dad, his this Robert's rich dad, didn't have a business degree. He was not educated, but he was smart at business. And so he brought in lots of smart people to help him, and they got to sit and listen. So he basically got like— So he got access. He got access. He got a shit ton of access. And I, I feel like it is only people yep. who have never dealt with circumstances beyond their control who believe that you can do anything and yep. y- your whole life is in your hands. Yep. So basically he's like, fear and desire— control us because fear of losing money controls the rich fear of not having money controls the poor um and you get money if you're poor or middle class and then your desire for something makes you spend it and then you're caught trapped in this circle that apparently rich or mike's uh, mike's dad calls the rat race apparently he invented that well, I, uh, uh-huh mm-hmm. i also really just don't like uh, like he's like all right kids come to the park yeah. we're gonna go see the undesirables the middle class yeah yeah and then we're gonna go back to our goodies yeah and they're like don't let emotion rule rule you if you need money you're gonna go out and get a job and you're gonna take the first job you can get and that's fear ruling you and i'm like okay whatever do you think a hendrix loves this fucking book i don't know probably because he's like this man doesn't have an upper limit problem well i i will say the thing that's speaking to me is like i the one thing that's resonating to me about that whole long story is that i do feel like fear and desire do really play into what, you know, it's like, oh, I'm afraid that if I ask for a raise, they might end up firing me if I get too expensive. Or I'm afraid that I will never get into the industry I want in the way I want, so I may as well take the first job and then try to make a lateral move. You know, like, these are all sorts of logical things that people do. I will say Mike's dad had a rule in his house that they never were allowed to say, I can't afford it or we can't afford it. They had to frame it as, how can we afford it? It just... I will also just point out that the philosophy of viewing everything you do through money is a specific set of values that not all people have. That's true. That's true. All right. But he was right. He's like, the minute you say, I can't afford it, you shut your brain off and your brain doesn't try to to figure it out anymore. Okay. I could see that. Yeah. Um, Lesson two, why teach financial literacy? Um. Then he starts with a quick uplifting story about how a bunch of really wealthy men like Andrew Carnegie and all these really wealthy men around the world uh, were gathered together in a room like around 1913 or something before the stock market crash and how most ended up dead and penniless. That was a really uplifting start to this chapter. Um, he says when people I'm sorry, ask, it sounds like he's letting uh, fear about money <laughs> rule how we're viewing this book. When people ask how to get rich quick or where to start, when they ask him that, he says you have to be financially literate. That makes sense. Yeah. He explains assets and liabilities and the difference between income statements and balance sheets and how cash flow works for most people in different different economic 
brackets. I don't know that I know how to do a balance sheet. Well, I don't know that you need to. Um, uh, basically, I'll show you on page. So like an an income statement is your income and your expenses, and a balance sheet is your assets and your liabilities. And in theory, your balance sheet should match that your assets should um even out against your liabilities. Um, and Elisa's pointing to a graphic on page 100 for anybody who's curious. But can you tell me, uh, I mean, like I know contextually, but what defines an asset and what defines a liability? He talks about assets in the next chapter, okay. um, which I'll, I'll mention the kinds that he uses. But basically an asset is something that um, is bringing in cash. Okay. Although I think most people would think about an asset as something that has value. Yeah, because like a house isn't going going to physically bring in cash for you every month, even if its value goes up. Right. I think that's the way he's trying to get people to think about it. So here are the reasons that he says. um, Oh, so like my job would be an asset? No, your job would be in your income. I'll explain that in the the next chapter on assets. Um, He says, today, people still challenge me on the idea of a house not being an asset. He says, I know that for many people, it's their dream as well as their largest investment. And owning your own home is better than nothing. I simply offer an alternative way of looking at this popular dogma. If my wife and I were to buy a bigger, flashier house, we realize it wouldn't be an asset. It would be a liability since it would take money out of our pocket. Mm. So here's what he says. When it comes to houses, most people work all their lives paying for a home they never own. In other words, most people buy a new house every few years, each time incurring a new 30-year loan to pay off the previous one. Yes. Who's buying a house every few years? Uh, some people do. You outgrow the home you have, and you. But seems like that would happen like. But twice. there are people who do live in their homes and pay it off and own it. Yeah. Many people over the age of fifty have uh, and sixty own their homes because yeah. they've paid it off. He says, even though people receive a tax deduction for interest on mortgage payments, they pay for all of their other expenses with after-tax dollars, even after they pay off their mortgage. Um, sometimes property taxes increase and they already retire. So the increase puts a strain on a budget. Mm-hmm. Houses do not always go up in value. And the greatest losses of all are those from missed opportunities. If all your money is tied up in your house, you may be forced to work harder because your money continues blowing out of the expense column instead of adding to the asset column, a classic middle cash flow pattern. So it's fine. He's not wrong, but yeah, you know, for... If if your goal is to just get to 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 gain more and more and more and more assets, yeah, buying a home might not be the best. But for a lot of people, to 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 own a home and then eventually to sell it or to own a home just so they stop paying rent, like it's not well, a bad and, thing. And what about to own a home for the love of creating a home and living in that and having your own space and not having a landlord and and that could sell the building out from under you. Yeah, and I know security is relative, but having the security of like, oh, as long as I keep making the payments, no one can really take this away from me, you know. Yeah. So that's cool. Um, He says the rich buy assets and the poor only have expenses and the middle class buy liabilities and think they are assets. That's the mindset that he says. Uh, Okay, I got to stop here. This is not just like like people who are um, financially struggling going around like, oh, I just like to, I just like to have expenses. You know, it's like, it, it paints this picture of like, oh, well, the poor only know how to spend money. Like, it's not as simple as that. No, and I will say he does use the term Indian giver in this book. And when I read oh, it, I literally oh gasped God. out loud. I couldn't believe that as the 20 anniversary <sighs> print, they didn't take that out. Oh my God. It was fun. It, it was does, fun for So me. this book does not age well. Well, even when they had the chance to rewrite it, they didn't. 
Yeah. Because this was published in 19... This was 2017's read. Oh, my God. The 20th anniversary. Oh, yeah, my edition. God. Okay. So, lesson three. <laughs> Eject. I'm ejecting Thank from you. this episode. Mind your own business. Does so he it, spell it like that? No. He says the rich, foc- <laughs> yes. the rich focus on their asset columns while everyone else focus on their income statements. Mm-hmm. So, the poor and middle class focus on how much money they're bringing in. Yeah. And the rich focus on how much money their money is earning. Okay. He tells the story of Ray Kroc, who founded McDonald's, taking a bunch of MBAs out for beer after speaking at a, with a class at University of Texas at Austin in 1974. And I, I said, I'm assuming they're all men. Uh, he asked the group, what business am I in? And they replied, hamburgers. And he said, ladies and gentlemen. And I said, oh, shit, there was a woman there. <laughs> I'm not in the hamburger business. My business is real estate. And actually, McDonald's is a real estate company. They own real estate, some of the most expensive real estate in the world, and they lease the franchise to people. So um, they lease that real estate to the people who uh, who buy the franchises. So, um, and some people say they own the most real estate in the world, <laughs> which is so oh interesting. Oh my god! Yeah. Wait, so McDonald's owns all of the buildings That's that right. McDonald's are in, but then they let. Some, so the if I wanted to own a McDonald's, there's no individual owners of, of McDonald's. Are all franchisees? So, but but I could go to them and they'd go, yeah, we'll supply the building, we'll do all rent. the stuff, you, pay, you pay the rent. Whoa, yeah. sounds like Scientology somehow. <laughs> well, here's the thing. So then he talks about assets and how um, he says there's a big difference between your profession and your business. So he says, I ask people, what is your business? And they say, oh, I'm a banker. And then I ask them if they own the bank. And they usually respond, no, I work there. And in that instance, they have confused their profession with their business. Their profession may be a banker, but they still need their own business. Okay, but not everybody can own a bank. Yeah, but also, also, so you've got your pr- profession, which back then was 40 hours a week, now is probably 65 hours a week, because let's be real, that's the hours we work. Yeah. Um, and you're supposed to have your own business in yeah. addition? And he's like, if you become a chef, if you have a specialized uh, uh, skill, like a chef or a mechanic, you work making somebody else money. It's like, listen, I understand, but not everyone in the world can work for themselves. Yeah, and say say you are earning a bunch of money as a chef, right? You're doing very well. People like your food. You're working at a great restaurant. It's not as simple as like, oh, cool, I'm going to take all that money and put it into a business. It's like, oh, well, if I'm taking care of my sick mother or that yep. in-home nurse for my yep. sibling, like, what? Okay. So here, the, here's where he starts to talk about assets, okay? So assets fall into um, important, uh, into these kind of categories, Businesses that do not require his presence. He owns them, but they are managed or run by other people. If mm. he has to work there, it's not a business. It becomes his job. Mm. This sounds a lot like uh, The 4-Hour Work Week by mm-hmm. Tim Ferriss, which we haven't covered on this podcast yet, but I bet you he has read this book. Stocks, which I have a problem with because only 20% of Americans invest in the stock market. So the stock market is not an accurate representation of America or the economy. It's yeah, unless you invest in the S and P, which is the overall market. You know what I mean? But it's it's like this. By the way, was this before the tech boom? Ninety seven. Ninety seven. It was like just before dot com or right at. Dot but com? also, he he he's been doing this since the sixties, seventies. 
Yeah. So these are his assets. This is what he recommends. Yeah, but it, it is also super fucking because, like, with the house, it's, it's like it's like which I know he doesn't consider it an asset, but it's like with the house. At least I know that if I make that payment, I'm getting the return of walls around me and a place <laughs> to live in and stocks. It's like I have yeah. made some bad investments yeah. that have lost me a lot of money. Yeah. Bonds, stocks, and bonds. Yeah. He says income generating real estate, notes, and like IOUs. Royalties from intellectual property such as music, scripts, and patents, and anything else that has value produces income or appreciates and already has uh, and, and has a ready market. Oh, cool! I'll just invest in the stock market and write best-selling uh, songs and mm-hmm. scripts and mm-hmm. movies and. Well, you can buy rights. those. You can buy those rights to things with all the money that's tied up in the stock market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When he says "mind your own business," he means to build and keep your asset column strong. Once a dollar goes into it, never let it come out. Mm. Think of it this way: once a dollar goes into your asset column, it becomes your employee. The best thing about money is how it works for you twenty-four hours a day. And can work for generations. Keep your day job. Be a great, hardworking employee, but keep building that asset column. Uh, I get what he's saying, but I I, uh, take umbrage with the words because every dollar you put in, never let it come out again. How are you going to pay for shit? You have to take some of the interest out or some of the assets out. Well, your income can pay for your bills and your asset... um, Your asset column will eventually generate revenue for you. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. So you can take it out eventually. He says never. Yeah. He's like, pay for luxuries from your from the earnings off your assets. Okay. Lesson four. The Great. history of taxes and the power of corporations. His poor educated dad loved Robin Hood. His rich, not real dad, uneducated dad fucking hated Robin Hood. Uh, so his his birth father was more of a socialist and his mm. um uh Ed, his educator father, his mentor dad, rich dad, was a capitalist. And so he kind of grew up in between these two worlds. Mm. He talks about financial IQ, okay? And okay. financial, like EQ, there's a, what he considers a financial IQ. And that uh, is made up of four areas of expertise. Accounting, investing, understanding markets, and the law, which includes tax advantages and protection from lawsuits. Okay. Um, and he says it's actually the synergy of many skills and talents, uh, and it's the combination of the four technical skills that make up the basic financial intelligence. And if you aspire to great wealth, it's the combination of these skills that will greatly amplify your intelligence. Let me ask you a question yeah. about this. Yeah. Um, do you feel like when you were reading this book, it felt like it was attainable, or did you feel like he was like, you need to know 1,000 things to do this well? No, some of the stuff is, it's, I felt like he was saying, think like I do and you'll be fine. Act like I do, you'll be fine. Have the opportunities that I did and you'll be fine. But he, I think if I'm projecting, it's like he feels, look, I'm saving you all this. I'm giving you the opportunity I had and I'm teaching you what I learned. That's also like, dude, fuck off. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, you had advantages and opportunities that many people don't and you never address systemic racism sure you can you can buy real estate let's talk about the fact that we have to have an entire cabinet member and department to prevent people from discriminating against people in real estate like yeah yeah just stop yeah. acting like it's just smart choices and that people just keep waiting because yeah. it, it well no, no no but i yes i and i love that in the caveat but i mean you personally like he's talking about like here are the things you have to know oh, and become an expert of, in and da, da, da. i like, subscribe to one thing he says yeah but did you feel like it, what he is suggesting is 
per- obtainable. Attainable. It is attainable, but if you are buried in debt, um, it's really hard to think about assets when you are just – most of this country is living on credit card debt. Yeah. So, no, it's not attainable. I, I don't mean the results. I mean the financial knowledge. He's like – he keep didn't he just say you have oh. to have like four things you have to know and be an expert in and really understand and da da da, da. I don't think he wants you to be an expert in it. You just kind of have to be aware of it. And also, no, I, I don't think so. Like, that's why we have, no, for me, no. I mean, I have an MBA, but I'm certainly not going to fucking do my own real estate contracts. I'm certainly going to go to an accountant to figure out tax Does he law. say to do your own no, real estate contracts? No, but like, I, I mean, I, I don't understand what his point is. Accounting is financial literacy or the ability to read numbers. This is a vital skill you want to build an empire. Look, I'm lucky that my MBA had a core curriculum because I failed accounting, but I aced marketing, I aced strategy, I aced um, uh, uh, those other things. Mm-hmm. So I averaged out. Mm-hmm. Has it made me suffer? No, I just don't have an accounting brain. It drives me bananas. Right. So you feel like he's asking a lot. I guess. Okay. I also just hate him. Okay. Copy. <laughs> Thank you. Can we okay. stop talking about that? Okay, great. Um, the rich invent money. That's lesson five. The rich invent money. And he says, this is about how the bold, not the smart, get ahead. Land used to be wealth. And so the more land you owned, the wealthier you were. But now what is wealth is information. Okay. So money and money isn't real. It's just what we agree that it is. You know, a dollar bill has no value. It's just that we agree that it's worth a dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, he makes and he makes games to teach people about money and financial IQ. And he says you have to figure out your why, why you want to have financial IQ. And he's like, I can't tell you why that is. You'll have to figure that out for yourself. Mm-hmm. And then on page one eighty five, he talks about creating money. Um, uh, he says, I'll give you a simple example of creating money. In the early 1990s, the economy of Phoenix, Arizona was horrible. I was watching a TV show when a financial planner came on and began forecasting doom and gloom. His fin- his advice was to save money. Put $100 away every month, he said. In 40 years, you'll be a multimillionaire. Well, putting away money every month is a sound idea. It's one option, the option most people subscribe to. The problem is this. It blinds the person to what is really going on. It causes them to miss major opportunities for much more significant growth of their money. The world is passing them by. As I said, the economy was terrible at that time. For investors, this is the perfect market condition. A chunk of my money was in the stock market and in apartment houses. I was short of cash. Because people were giving properties away, I was buying. I was not saving money. I was investing. Kim, his wife, and I had more than a million dollars in cash working in a market that was rising fast. It was the best opportunity to invest. The economy was terrible. I just could not pass up those small deals. Houses that were once $100,000 were now seventy-five. But instead of shopping with local real estate agents, I began shopping at the bankruptcy attorney's office or the courthouse steps. In these shopping places, a $75,000 house could sometimes be bought for $20,000 or less. Or the courthouse steps? Yeah, people. Uh Like when someone was about to go in? Uh Uh-huh. For $2,000, which was loaned to me from a friend for 90 days for $200, I gave an attorney a cashier's check as a down payment. While the acquisition was being processed, I ran an ad advertising a $75,000 house for only 60 and no money down. The phone rang hard and heavy. Prospective buyers were screened, and once the property was legally mine, all the prospective buyers were allowed to look at the house. It was a feeding frenzy. The house sold in a few minutes. I asked for a $2,500 processing fee, which they gladly handed over, and the escrow and title company took over from there. 
I returned the $2,000 to my friend with an additional $200, as I promised him. He was happy. The home buyer was happy. The attorney was happy. And I was happy. I had sold the house for $60,000 that cost me twenty. dollars The $40,000 was created from money in my asset column in the form of a promissory note from the buyer. Total working time, five hours. Your face is amazing. I, 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 that is not a repeatable, like you cannot, you cannot replicate what he just did or uh, it sounds incredibly risky, irresponsible to say this is a way that you can do this. And I'm not saying that it didn't work for him, right? It clearly worked for him. It sounds like he's done this a few times, but it is preying on desperate people. It is. It is like you don't even know what kind of a house you're selling. And yes, you're selling it at a discount. And oh, aren't you so amazing for offering this house to to people who want $15,000 off. But like, it's just so inherently flawed. And it's something, you know, you talked about on uh, the last episode with Dave Ramsey's Total Money Makeover. It all goes back to your tolerance for risk. You know, like if you have been working a minimum wage job and it took you years to save up $10,000 for something, do you really want to risk it on this? Like what if what if somebody gets injured on your property and suddenly you've got a lawsuit? Like there's so much more involved than that. And I just, this is not, go- he was fucking stupid and he didn't, <laughs> he came out okay. And so he's saying, well, do this? he wasn't stupid at that moment because he and his wife had a mill. Like they were secure. This could have, they could have lost on this deal and it wouldn't have broken Ah, them. which is why he could afford to be wildly risky. But also- he had a friend that he could go to and say, can I borrow $2,000 Well, if they were so secure, investment? why would he, because he, they were he cash say, poor? No, yeah, he said we had a million dollars tied up in the real estate market. Yeah. They, they, were, they were cash poor. They, they weren't liquid at that moment. So, but how many people who are in poor and middle class have a friend who could loan them $2,000 at a 10% uh, interest rate on a short t- turnaround? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and also it just feels really scary skeevy to be on the court steps. Hey, I know it's the worst day of your life and you're going in because you're about to have your home foreclosed on or whatever that that process looks like. Mm-hmm. It's just, I don't know. It just, so, it's not sitting well with me and I can't articulate exactly well, why. Well, I get it. And also, but I, his, his example is to say there's opportunities to create money. He yes. talks about like yes. when he was little, he and his and Mike they opened up this comic book library in, in in Mike's basement because at the the convenience store they were working at, they realized that the comic book distributor comes and throws out all the comic books that are old, and they said mm-hmm. we'll take them off your hands for you. He said you just can't sell them, so they rented a comic book library from like two thirty to four thirty after school. Kids could pay a dime because mm-hmm. comic books cost a dime. They could mm-hmm. pay a dime, and then they had two hours. To read as many comic books as they wanted Mm -hmm. um, until bullies came and, like, broke it up. Um, But uh, so he's, like, creating money. And listen, that is how a lot of new businesses made. Like Uber, a lot of the disruptive markets is how it happens. But also, it is a lot of risk tolerance. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Chapter six, work to learn, don't work for money. So this is, and I kind of agree with this. This is all about how he kept changing jobs to learn more specialized skills instead of staying and becoming invested in one company. And like his poor dad, this terrified him because he was like, get in with one company and you'll be good. But he um, he says that main management skills needed for success are management of cash flow, management of systems, and management of people. And he worked at a bunch of different um places learning different skills so like Mm. he was at xerox he learned how to sell and then he like he he was in the marine corps before that and he learned like systems like he 
he really just kind of became a jack of all trades, okay. um, which really helped. So yeah, uh, I bet it did. Yeah, and that he's like, useful. it feels uncomfortable to give up a job with good income to go to another one, um, but the skill that you're giving, uh, you're getting, is is worth it. Okay. Lesson seven: Overcoming obstacles. He says there are five main reasons why financially literate people might not be financially independent. And they might not make abundant asset columns that produce a large cash flow. Those five are fear, cynicism, laziness, bad habits, and arrogance. Mm. And I wrote, you'll notice there's nothing systemic on this list. Yeah, nothing. It all seems they're all internal. Yeah, he gives tips in each chapter on how to get over these. Uh, I I will say the two that rang true for me that I was like, hmm, I wonder is uh, cynicism and fear. Because, you know, I'm financially independent. I don't have a safety net. You know, my my parents can't catch me if I fall yeah. in a sense. And so there's a fear of like, okay, be cautious because, you know, yeah. one wrong move and, yeah. and whatever. And then cynicism of like, right now it's like, oh, well, I'm never going to earn enough cash to buy a house in this city. You know, so like why, why even try? I mean. That kind of thing. The other thing that's missing from this, and this was less present in 1997, but still, is, you know, what's not on this list is a catastrophic accident. Yes. Or contracting Hodgkin's lymphoma. Yeah, it's like Dave Ramsey said, like, the number one cause for bankruptcy and debt are medical bills. Yeah. That's the number. These are not people who are just don't know how to save or don't know how to invest. I wish your asset column was... Big enough so that you could have paid for all of your extraneous medical bills by the time you got on Hodgkin's lymphoma at 27. Yeah, or you had, know a, they or just had an accident on the job or got into a car accident. Yeah. Like, come on. Um, so those are the seven main lessons. Then there's a chapter called Getting Started. And this is the one that I subscribe to. Great. It says, pay yourself first. Hmm. And it says, this is from the book, uh, a 1926 book by George Samuel Clayson. It's called The Richest Man in Babylon. But I'll tell you what. My Grammy taught me that from the day that I earned my first quarter in my allowance, and her father taught her that, and he was born in 1867 or 1868. Wow. Um, You pay yourself first. You always pay yourself first. Before you pay your bills, you pay yourself first. And if that means that you pay your bills late, so be it. You always pay yourself first. And why is that? Well, because that's how you're building your assets, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're saving, you're you're investing in yourself. Mm -hmm. Most people pay, they pay their government out of their taxes and their paycheck. Mm-hmm. Then they pay, or they they pay the company uh, for their for their like things that are taken out in, in their paycheck. Then they pay the government for their taxes, and they pay all their utilities, and then they save. Oh, and you save first. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. You pay yourself first. That's what Grammy always said. Although uh, I did hear a good piece of advice, which was like, if you have debt in the interest rate, say it's like a high interest rate credit card, mm-hmm. saving, you know, a hundred bucks that week in an account that's only going to get you a 2% return versus paying down the debt with 25%, guess what's ultimately going to let you save more faster is paying down the debt first. So like you sure. do have to pay attention to interest rates, I feel like. Yeah, like if you only have, it's also about self-discipline. Yeah. Right? Like if you just commit that the first $100 out of your paycheck always goes into the bank. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or always goes into buying more assets that'll pay for you. Yeah. Versus paying everyone else first. Yeah. Like it's uncomfortable. Some people will be like, no, you have to pay your bills first. You have to pay your bills. If you don't save that month. Yeah, I feel I feel like that's the kind of thing that I think about is like, oh no, take care of like the necessities is what I consider. But I also think there's so for me and thinking that way and having that self-awareness, I think uh having an automatic withdrawal every week, if you are in a position where you can do that is huge. Yeah. You have that to would be really helpful. Yeah. Pay yourself first. Uh, last thing, he's, chapter nine, you still want some more. Uh, here are some to-dos. Um, stop doing what you're doing. Take a break and assess what's working, what not, what's not working. Look for new ideas. Go to bookstores and search for books on different and unique subjects. Um, find someone who has done what you want to do. Take classes, read and attend seminars, make lots of offers. You don't know what the right price is until you have a second party who wants to deal. Mm. Um, most sellers ask too much. He says, jog, walk, or drive a certain area once a month for 10 minutes. He says he's found some of his best real estate investments doing this. He'll jog a certain neighborhood for a year and look for a change so that he can see what's happening. Shop for bargains in all markets. Look in the right places. He gives a lot of tips. And listen, the best part about this book is the study questions and the the summary chapters at the end of each one, because okay. they explicitly say you don't have to agree with Robert on these statements. What's important is that you understand. And then it kind of helps you understand, like, what your relationship to money is. Okay. Um, that sounds useful. Yeah. I mean, all right. So, Lisa. Yeah? What did you love about this book? I love that it attributed Pay Yourself First to a man who wrote a book when my Grammy's been telling it to me and she was born before that book was recorded. That sounds, uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, what did you actually love about this book? <laughs> Um, I thought that the addition of like study questions was helpful because financial literacy isn't taught in schools. And he does argue. He's yeah. like, we should teach financial literacy in schools and we don't. I feel really financially illiterate. Mm-hmm. Like the the two books that we've, you know, the one that you just told us all about, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and then the Dave Ramsey one that I read for the last episode, that is the, I, I mean, I've read a lot online about like how to invest in the stock market. Um, and you know, I use like mint as a budgeting tool, but that's, that's like the most I've ever read about it. And I, I consider myself a financially, you know, healthy person, but it's, but I, I still feel so illiterate about it. I mean, you know, my parents got me a checking account when I was in high school and taught me how to balance my checkbook and we don't balance checkbooks anymore. You know? Yeah. You don't Um, have to because you you can see the balance at all times. And you kind of know, hopefully, you know, like what's going in and what's going out. But like, um, we don't teach financial literacy. We don't teach the value of compounded interest. We don't teach, um, you know, APR. We don't teach that stuff and we really should. Yeah. And what did you hate about the book? Everything. Yeah. How is it? Can I ask, like, yeah. how is his writing style? How is the tone? Oh, his writing style is he loves to tell a story. And That's he... great because I love a book that tells a lot of stories. Yeah. I mean, it is very, like, rose-colored glasses remembering the stuff that's happened, like, easily mm-hmm. 60 years ago. You know, about, did like— it, Did it? you get the sense that he hated his biological dad? His no, dad. he feels sorry for him. I, I just feel like he had this really wonderful opportunity to have two completely different viewpoints about money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 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 relationship to money and he was able to kind of choose his own. Right. And who is this? Because you, the the one the relationship you have with money is the one that you were born into. Yes. Yeah, because that's how you start to understand the entire world, right? Yeah. And um who's this book perfect for? This book is perfect for somebody who um 
maybe grew up in a house where the relationship with money was very complicated and very um, negative. Mm. Um, and uh, somebody who would like to start dabbling in like taking control of their of their um, assets. Okay, yeah, like kind of increasing what's yeah, making money like, for them. Yeah, and and you know if you don't have if you if you don't want to own a home, then this is a great book for you. <laughs> um, that's interesting. I, more and more, I'm meeting people who are like, I don't want to own a home. I want to be able to call somebody else when shit breaks and blah 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 blah, or the yeah. freedom to like just move to another city on the drop of a hat. Yeah. Um, why does this book trigger you so much? Do you think? I mean, because he has like this is the one way to do it. This is the one way to do it. And he is not acknowledging his privilege, his access, his opportunity, mm-hmm. um, or that other people might not have the same opportunity and 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 would not yield the same results. Yeah. That, that fucking bothers me. Yeah. Um, you know, and this, like, laziness, like, fuck you. Yeah, some people are lazy. But some people are not lazy. Some people are working twice as hard as you and not getting the same well, opportunity. Well, and I, I don't know that true— laziness exists because I and this is a theory I'm coming up with in this moment but it's it's present for me Uh, laziness comes from like often a fear of inadequacy a cynicism like some other one of the other internal obstacles Mm -hmm. like I don't know people who are just like lazy to be lazy they're lazy because they they have low self-esteem and feel like nothing they do is right so why try sometimes I'm just lazy Sure. Well, also, I mean, if you've, if you've, but like if you've worked all day and you yeah, know you're like going to have a crazy, yeah. yeah, but I mean like, like inherent I, laziness. I don't think, yeah. yes, I, I think temporary laziness we all go through and I think it's, that's about recharging. Again, yeah. I don't even think that's laziness. I think it's a need to really recharge. So, cause that's how balance works. Also laziness implies that there's like a, a, a right and a wrong, right? Like what if, it, what if just like we have body diversity what if we just like we have you know there's a spectrum and some people are much more uh, alert and eager and interested in doing things all the time and other people are just kind of like I'm cool not doing that yeah because it might come from a place of contentedness but also like if you are finding that you are routinely quote-unquote lazy chances are there could be a mild depression. There could be a self-esteem issue. Yeah. There could be a- any number of things. So I, I don't know. I just, it just has such a negative connotation yeah. of like, you know better and you suck. Yeah. You know, which yeah. I don't like. Um, also, since we know that socioeconomic class isn't just about money. It's yeah. about race. It's about education. Education. It's about access. It's about all sorts of things. It's hard to just be like, "Well, you were lazy. Yeah. You weren't bold enough. You." I, yeah. I, I can't stand that shit. And that's a tri- that's a that's a triggering word for me. Do you have um, a listener challenge for me this week? I do. Okay. I would love for you. I'll loan you this book, and oh, you God. can don't say read it. No, uh, <laughs> you can just read, read the, the chapter about. Um, uh, asset and liabilities and income statements because I think you might actually enjoy that. Okay. To think about that in a different way. Okay, hand it over. Thank you. You didn't describe it. You didn't describe oh, it. okay. It um it feels like a romance novel um from what a friend described to me about how they feel. <laughs> um, <laughs> it is 
purple uh-huh. is the background. Uh, rich dad is in big, bold yellow font, and then much smaller and skinny white font is poor dad. And it is uh, Robert Kiyosaki uh, wearing like a typical uh, grayish 90s blazer, kind of like leaning forward like a glamour shop, smiling, is it a black mouth turtleneck? open. Uh, black t-shirt. T-shirt. And he's smiling like, look how um, rich and happy I am. Well, he is. And it's, uh, it doesn't feel like a, I, I, I wouldn't be like excited for someone to find this in my purse. <laughs> it's not like a, like Which some. Which romance novel would you be excited well, for I mean, people to find Some in books purse? are so beautiful yes. or they're, they're very art, artsy looking. This is like a, this is like a 90s, I made this in PowerPoint. I don't think it was meant to be found in a purse. Well, why someone going through my purse is what I want to know. Get out of my purse. Get out of my purse. Get out of my purse. Okay, Lisa. Um, is there anything positive that you want to share with us as a palate cleanser? I like everybody, and you're pretty, and you're nice. Thank you. Um, you're pretty, and you're nice. Thanks. And if if any of you listening have not, uh, if you typically skip over the minisodes, I just want to say that we have had some really cool guests for yeah. several episodes in a row who bring such a fun and unique they each bring different perspectives to the show and those are really fun episodes so if you haven't heard them and we've got more coming up um, and also I just want to say thank you so much to everyone who has been rating and subscribing oh God, and thank reviewing you. it is so exciting to be like oh look there's more ratings there's more review like it helps people find the show and you all are showing up for us so yeah. hard and we're so grateful Um, and if you're thinking about it you're like oh right oh damn I meant to rate subscribe and review it's not too late y'all you can always you do you Um, and Lisa's got some really fun Instagram posts coming up for this week so uh, make sure to check us out at go help yourself podcast (laughs) (laughs) on Instagram and at GHY podcast on Twitter Twitter. and we all uh, I would love to hear from you if you've read this book and you loved it yeah tell me how I'm wrong please 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 yeah Please. And if you're like, dude, I, I'm i on the courthouse steps right now writing you this listener email. I'm scamming people. Who As I are, go in, being sued. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I buy tissues in bulk to dry their tears. Uh, let us know. We're gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And with that, life is abundant. Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less, was produced by Misty Stinnett, Lisa Linky, and Matt Sav. Our theme song was also written by Matt Sav. He's amazing. <laughs> do you want to get in touch? You do. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And you know you can also find us on the social medias, Instagram at gohelpyourselfpodcast, Twitter at Podcast, or check out our website, gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes to help other people discover our show. It's really the least you can do. And why don't you tell all of your friends? Bye! Bye.